Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I am on a mission to discover the books that have shaped the lives of the people whose work we know and love, from actors and writers to comedians and artists and even politicians. It's a chance to find out more about their inspirations and influences and to delve deep into the reason why their reading matters. This time around, I'm absolutely thrilled. It's been a quest for some time to be joined by the multi-award-winning comedian, actor and writer David Williams. As co-creator of Little Britain with Matt Lucas, David Williams occupies a fascinating position in our cultural consciousness, from performing Pinter alongside Michael Gambon in the West End to his colossal success as one of our biggest-selling children's writers and, since 2012, as a judge on ITV's BAFTA award-winning talent show Britain's Got Talent. Uh, David Williams, welcome to Books to Live By. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, before the pandemic, um, I had the luxury of popping around to people's houses and recording the podcast there, and you'd get to see the room in which they liked most to read. And um, I can just see a window behind you and the kind of edge of a picture, but but not anything else. So maybe you could describe to me, first of all, if we were in the room that you like to read in, where would it be? What does it look like? Well, I like to read in bed mostly, you know, just going to bed and lying in bed. And, you know, one of the books I picked was a poetry book, which I think is wonderful to read just before you go off to sleep because it it gives you dreams. Um, Children's books now I read with my son. So we tend to read them on the sofa uh, together, cuddled up, which is a lovely thing. My son just turned nine. Um, And actually the pandemic was an opportunity to read a lot more together because suddenly time was sort of much more open-ended than usual, wasn't it? We weren't in a rush to get anywhere because there was nowhere to go. So instead of maybe reading two or three chapters of a Roald Dahl book, we might, you know, read 10 chapters, which was wonderful. And obviously being a performer as well, I loved putting on the voices and everything. And sometimes I'd get a voice wrong. You go, no, Daddy, it's not that voice. It's the other one. (laughs) (laughs) And make me do it again. Um, and so, yeah, they're the sort of main places that I read. And I used to read a lot on holiday, but when you have a child, that, that goes out the window because no, there's no relaxing anymore. It's, it's purely entertaining them, which is wonderful. But that thing of like, oh, finishing, you know, getting taking a big book on holiday with you or a few big books and, you know, reading them over a couple of days is, it was a wonderful luxury that is now a thing of the past. So I'm going to imagine then... Maybe I shouldn't be in your bedroom with you uh, talking about books, but let's be cuddled up on the sofa, shall we, uh, as we discuss um, the list you've sent me, which has made me so excited because it's so interesting. There's so much to dig into in terms of, you know, what inspires you, you know, the kind of themes that are here. But first of all, just when did you first get into reading yourself? Did somebody read you stories and do the voices? Yes, my my dad, and I suppose my mum too, but I remember my dad reading Dr. Seuss' Screen Eggs and Ham to me. And I love Dr. Seuss. I love Dr. Seuss to this day, especially the places you'll go, which is absolutely beautiful. It's kind of like the best book you could give anyone who's just had a child. It's called Oh, The Places You'll Go. And so I remember that because I remember the Dr. Seuss stories being so sort of spooky and the creatures being slightly nightmarish. So it's a kind of interesting thing to be read um, to you before you go to bed because because it's a bit they're a bit like nightmares, aren't they? Things keep piling on top of each other in Dr. Seuss books. You know, it's a bit like the Sorcerer's Apprentice in in Fantasia. You know what I mean? Things are kind of out of control. So um, I remember that, and we didn't have a lot of books in the house when I was growing up. It was more that we went to the local library to Banstead Library, and we'd go every couple of weeks, and me and my sister would pick, you know, two or three books, sometimes a cassette tape, 
I mean, this <laughs> made me old, but you, I remember, you know, getting out the Queen soundtrack to Flash Gordon lots of times. They probably had about 10 cassettes that you could take home. And I think the book, that just the first book I read purely for my own pleasure was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, which is, I think, still one of the greatest children's books ever written. It's certainly one of the most imaginative. And it's incredible the recognition that book has. You know, I've been around the world talking about my children's books and, you know, it, you're never going to draw a blank with that one because it, it's kind of entered the culture, isn't it? A bit like George Orwell's 1984. It's like you know, um, Willy Wonka, uh, Wonka bars, golden tickets, Oompa Loompas, you know, it's all, it's, it's, it's just, even if you've not heard of the book, you'd have heard of golden tickets, wouldn't you? And you may have heard of Wonka bars. How much did the, um, the things that appealed to you as a child in choosing a book, like the reasons that you would have picked Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for example, how much did they inform you when you started writing your own books for children? Well, I think... Two things, I, I, when I'm thinking back to being a child, the first is the title's got to be juicy because obviously Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sounds exciting because you're going to go to a chocolate factory when you're a kid. Chocolate is something you think about a lot and a chocolate factory is like, wow. And it's obviously like a magical place, you know, like an Oz or something rather than just a rather boring factory where they make chocolate bars. And second, I feel the illustrations were always really important because I used to flip through books, look at the illustrations and think, is this an exciting story? And then if it looked exciting because of the, because of the illustrations, I would get out of the library. So it's two things that I think about a lot when I'm you know, creating a children's book, writing it, and, and, and also when we get into the design stage, is thinking, please can I have as many pictures as possible? And obviously I really want the title to be catchy and immediately capture people's imaginations and sound funny and exciting, all those kind of things. I mean, some titles don't do that, but they're still kind of iconic titles. Like Matilda is quite a strange title in a way. It doesn't tell you anything about the story other than it's going to be about a girl. Whereas other titles tend to give a bit more away, don't they? The, the BFG, Fantastic Mr. Fox. The one I picked was actually The Twits, though. Yes, and I was—I want to ask you about that because one of the things I think is very brave about the Twits and unusual is that it's a children's book with no children in it. Yeah, children are only very briefly in it. They get stuck to a tree, but they don't <laughs> really have any identity in the book and it's certainly not about them and it's very fleeting. I think that's the sort of genius of it. It's a story about an old married couple who hate each other. Again, which you think thematically would not be one that would appeal to kids, but... It's so funny, the tricks they play on each other are so brilliant and kind of grisly, you know, the glass eye that Mrs. Twit puts at the bottom of uh, Mr. Twit's beer mug, the worms that she she puts out for him as spaghetti, the trick he plays on her of making her walking stick taller and making her feel like she's shrinking. She's got the shrinks, which is incredible, by putting coins on it. It's so inventive. The book kind of has, it's sort of weird, it sort of shifts from these tricks they play on each other to then the roly-poly bird and the, and the mugglewumps um, playing tricks on them. And I just love the surrealism of the story. I love the fact that they die in the end from the shrinks, even though that's something that Mr. Twit had previously made up, and that their whole house is turned upside down by this army of animals. I mean, it's extraordinary. And also, it is so fantastically illustrated by Quentin Blake and the more that Roald Dahl worked with Quentin Blake I think the more he relied on Quentin to help tell the story as much as the words and this is a book that is full of illustrations and they're really funny and brilliant in their own right and you couldn't imagine the story without them. There's so much in here. I mean, first of all, aren't we all going to die of the shrinks? I mean, I, I had a battle with my mother-in-law in the kitchen the other day because I said, I'm actually taller than you now. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, I am. Come on, let's measure. And, you know, we measured and she has. She used to be 5'7 and I'm 5'5. Five five, and she's shrunk by two inches. So, you know, there, 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 there is a fate that awaits us all. Which I bet was... you're very popular, aren't you? <laughs> not really. <laughs> Measuring old people. <laughs> 
<laughs> Come on. Shrunk. You've shrunk. <laughs> um, but also, you you sort of said like that the idea of, of, you know, an unhappily married couple and, and you know, that that just set out to, to torture each other basically through the book might not seem sort of perfect territory for children. But I think that kids watch adults' relationships so forensically that it's exactly the sort of book that would appeal to them because they're forever watching to see the weather between adults in their lives and particularly parents. I mean, the other day, uh, my daughter said that she dreamt that my husband was having an affair and, and she and I were laughing about it and she was going, it was, she was so ugly, the woman. It, she was so ugly. I kept going to Dad, why so ugly? And my son, on the other hand, was sitting there looking absolutely pale-faced and horrified and sort of checking me to make sure I wasn't going to burst into tears and start, like, gnashing my teeth and weeping. So I think that idea of, of, of observing adults is something that children do. Did you not do it as a child? Yeah, no, I did. I did definitely. But uh, my mum and dad <laughs> were not like the twins, sadly. But um, of course, you, you know, it, it's characters, isn't it? You you love to hate them. They're grotesque, awful characters, but you love spending time with them. And um, they're funny. But the, the one of the things that's very unusual about the book is it starts with a great diatribe about men with beards, he says, what is it about men with beards these days? And that goes on for a couple of pages. Then he goes, well, enough about that. Let's get on to the story. This is an extraordinary way to start a book. And very, quite hard for children to understand quite what the problem would be with men with beards. But um, that's part of his genius. And I always feel like with him, you're sort of totally at home. You're totally at home with him telling you a story and you're totally in the palm of his hand, you know, you really get the sense of this character of Roald Dahl telling you the story. I think that is a, a big part of the appeal because he definitely has a worldview that's pretty misanthropic and that there is, you know, horrible things happening in the world all the time and he's going to tell you about them. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you yourself, not so much in your work, but but when you talk about life and about yourself, that uh, misanthropic seem uh, also seems to exist. And I, I wondered how much that's the thing that, that appealed to you about Roald Dahl, even in youth. Well, I think, I think as a kid, you know, you, you feel like the books, books are slightly forbidden because they deal with some often quite sort of grisly themes. And he's very unforgiving about grown-ups and the hypocrisy of grown-ups, I think, which is always a great theme for a children's book. He deals with things with incredible ease, like in uh, James and the Giant Peach, James's parents are killed by a, a skate rhinoceros from the zoo that tramples them to death. And he goes, well, which is, you know, it was all over for them very quickly. Um, but for James, it was a problem because he had to go and stay with his aunt. And just go, this is brilliant. Just because they often say with children's books, you've got to kill off the parents in the first chapter of the Harry Potter. They're, they're dead, aren't they, at the start of the book? And no idea. Yeah, and it just allows the kids to have an adventure without the grown-ups. But it's just wonderful. They're just, <laughs> they're just killed by an escaped rhinoceros. <laughs> when you're a kid, you think such a thing might be possible. But, you know, a rhinoceros does escape and it just runs over people and kills them and that's it. Before we move on to books for grown-ups, uh, of which you've chosen a wonderful selection, what did you take? Um, did you borrow recklessly, uh, flagrantly from Roald Dahl when you set out to write your books? What are the things that you took from from those books as, as being the sort of tenants for creating, building your own? I just kind of thought of him as the gold standard of storytelling. So I felt that his books were on a pedestal and that me and probably lots of other writers probably think, well, with that, that's the gold standard to aspire to. The things I remembered uh, from his books is that I never felt that they patronised children in any way. He's never trying to write a cutesy story. So even in something like Fantastic Mr Fox, you know, which you might think might be straying in sort of Beatrix Potter territory, it doesn't. It, 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 you know, it's very hard-edged, isn't it? Those farmers are trying to kill that fox and the fox is trying to survive. And and so there's always an edge to it. It's never patronising. And also there's a strong authorial voice, which I think helps. And also I think he's just not afraid to explore the darkness as well. So I think it's more sort of 
you know, I, I just sort of think, and I also, I suppose, he does this thing where the comedy and the, the horror or misery or something can coexist, which I think is important. You know, those books are funny, they're not light. Do you know what I mean? I mean, The Twits is a really funny book, but it's not sort of light, it's not fluffy in any way. It's still quite dark, and, you know, the fact that they die at the end by shrinking into their own heads, you know, <laughs> it's just really, really macabre. You know, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with him. I, I love him. I never got to meet him, obviously. But um, but I'm glad that his work is still celebrated in the way it is and he's still on this pedestal. Do you think they informed your worldview or, or reflected it? Um, I think they helped inform it. I think when you're a child, you, you sort of want to believe in magic and danger everywhere. I mean, in in The Witches, he says that you know, this book is about real witches, you know, witches that could be your aunt or your teacher or anything like that. And 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 when you're a kid, you want to believe that the house in the end of the streets that deserted has a ghost in it, doesn't it? You want to believe that. So I feel he encourages that. He encourages that view you have as a kid where you're sort of halfway between the real world and the imaginary world, you know, and the fact that his world is always larger than life. I think that's one of the things I love so much is that, he very effortlessly creates a world that is sort of bigger and bolder than the real one. A bit like Ian Fleming does in a way, I think, with, with James Bond books as well. It's not it's not quite the real world, isn't it? And that that is quite a big that's quite a clever trick to pull off, I think. Well, you haven't chosen anything like Ian Fleming on this list. I'm glad you mentioned darkness because I was trying desperately to think how how I make the segue from the twits to Albert Speer, his battle with truth by Gita Sereni, which I think if the twits is your your favourite childhood book or one of your favourite childhood books, this really incongruously is, I think, your holiday reading, maybe Pre, pre-parented, obviously, but seriously, that's what you described. You read this book on holiday. Now, for those listening who haven't read uh, Albert Speer, His Battle with Truth, when I say a doorstep of a book, I mean, I mean it absolutely literally, but it's also an incredibly deep exploration of the uh, psyche of the Third Reich. I mean, Albert Speer was, was Hitler's right-hand man. He was Minister of War and Armaments, Munitions, I think, in the latter part of the war. And, and Gita Sereni decides to get to the bottom of him. Tell me a little bit about why you picked up this book. Um, <laughs> what, what size of luggage you take with you on holiday and, and what it gave to you? Well, Albert Speer is, is a very interesting figure because he was the most senior Nazi who was not sentenced to death at the Nuremberg trials. And the interesting part of his story that that Gita Sereni is really interested in is that Albert Speer claims that he didn't know anything about the Holocaust, despite him being, as you say, Hitler's right-hand man. He starts off as an architect and he sort of had the vision of what what Hitler's Germany should look like. And he maintained that he didn't know about the Holocaust and therefore, you know, wasn't part of it and therefore shouldn't be put to death. And Gita Sereni, the book is is subtitled Albert Speer, His Battle with Truth, and it's about her trying to get from him an admission that he did know about the Holocaust and, you know, what he felt about being part of such an evil regime. So because he's an architect, it's a bit like Lenny Riefenstahl being a photographer, it's it's there's a chance that you might see them slightly differently, you know, than people who were, you know, ordering the deaths of of millions of people. But at the same time, they are guilty of being part of this terrible machine that did this to people. And Gita Sereni, all her books I enjoyed. She wrote a couple of books about the child killer Mary Bell. She's very interested in that. The phrase we often talk about, the banality of evil. But Albert Speer, yeah, it is an epic book. There are many, many books about the Second World War and obviously many, many books about the Nazis. And there still continues to be many books about the Nazis. It's endlessly fascinating. But this, I think, is certainly the greatest book I've ever read about that period of time. Because because he becomes a real person. And you sort of, you're trying to understand him. 
and he's you know he's an intelligent man he's someone you probably you know would have been quite interesting to meet and so you feel guilty a little bit for liking him but you're also interested in you know how he could have got involved with such a deeply evil regime it's interesting you say you feel guilty for liking him because actually i reread the prologue to it and Gita Sereni is almost apologising in the opening uh, for succumbing to his charm in a way. She's sort of preparing you for the fact that that she too kind of fell under a, a, a vague sort of spell. But I wondered, I think the really interesting thing is, as you say, you know, he, like Lenny Reifenstahl, they're artists. So in a way, it's almost more shocking if they could commit such horrific acts because uh, they're not numbskulls, they're not sort of, you know, thugs, they're not, these are people that, and we think of education as humanising people and elevating them and opening their minds. And he would be, on the one hand, an example of that not working, I suppose. Yeah, well, you think of art as being empathetic and you think of artists as being empathetic, so it's really hard to understand why artists, you know, in some way were, were part of this, of, of, of this, you know, of, of Hitler's vision. It is one of those sort of monolithic books. And I think if you were only ever going to read one book about this period of history, I couldn't recommend it higher. Gita Sereni, I think, is, is, is sort of at home with the complexity of it. She understands that people just like us are capable of doing terrible things. You know, she understands that. So she's not seeing it in a I don't know, through a, a sort of prism you often see in a sort of war film or something like that. It's much more complex than that. And he's a much more complex character than that. And why do you think you were so intrigued by him? I mean, obviously, each of us choose books because something in them, you know, reflects something within us or, or uh, you know, intrigues us, is a theme that we're connected to. Why do you think? I mean, that and clearly books on the Third Reich, of which you've read a number. <laughs> well, just saying. It's just, it's just not, it's not, I over egg this. You know what I mean? I don't have a collection of Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> well, I suppose it's the age-old question when it comes to the Holocaust, which is, you know, what if you were put in that situation? If you'd been born in Germany, you know, in the 1910s and the 1920s, if you'd have been around at that time, what would you have done? Would you have resisted? Um, this thing and perhaps been killed? Would you, would you have, you know, been part, would you have been swept along with it? And I think that's why it's, it's still an interesting topic to people because it's very easy to think, well, of course, I would have said, yeah, I would have done this, you know, I would have died a hero, I would have done that. But, you know, you just don't really know, do you? But it's just an interesting, a very interesting angle. And the fact that she got to spend time with him, you know, makes it a lot more interesting than a lot of books. Well, I think it's that thing about what would you do in that situation does actually even with your books that, that you know, your your children's books that, that, that you don't dictate morality. You know, I remember going to Yugoslavia uh, just before the war broke out in Yugoslavia, just after Tito had died and just before. And I met all these like incredible, I was working with dire straits at the time, I met all these incredible professors and, you know, really interesting people, half of whom sort of turned up on mugshots as war criminals, you know, a, a decade later. Later. And it was really shocking to me because, you know, these seemed perfectly normal people like you and I sitting having a chat about books today. And I think that's what's really fascinating about what Gita Sereni's unpicking. Yeah, I just think she's humanising it. I mean, there's a there's a film, a German film called Downfall about the last um, days of Hitler in the bunker before he shoots himself. And what is interesting about that film that's got a brilliant brilliant performance by Bruno Ganser's Hitler is that for the first time on screen I'd actually thought Hitler was a real person obviously some great actors have played him but it, it often feels quite caricatured and Bruno Gans makes him almost sort of vulnerable in some way and as a result, you sort of understand the story better because it is a it is a human story, and it's very easy just to see all these people as as devils or something. But they were people, weren't they? And they did this these did these terribly evil things to other people, and so it's a fascinating part of history. And yes, and it is something, isn't it, where you sort of, where you you do ponder, well, what would I have done? In that situation, but it's interesting that Albert Speer and Lenny Riefenstahl, you know, for the rest of their lives, they had to live with this 
guilt that they'd been they'd helped Hitler shape his aesthetic vision, and that had been one of the things that had been attractive to so many Germans who became wrapped up in Nazism. Do, do you think that um, it's also surprising to some people who might be fans of yours that this would be a book on your list? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, 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 you know, the world life. I'm not, you know, just because I like to write funny books doesn't mean that that's the only books I like to read. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in periods of history and personalities that shape the world. I mean, when I was at school, my favourite subjects were English and history. And, and history is full of characters who are, you know, deeply flawed characters who sort of shape the world, don't they? I mean, a handful of people have over time shaped the world for for everybody. I mean, right now, with what's happening in Ukraine, you know, Putin, it feels like the will of one man, isn't it? It's not, it doesn't seem like the will of the Russian people. It seems like the will of one man to do this thing, to create this death and destruction and, you know, and, and it's sort of unthinkable, isn't it, that one person could have this power. But history is full of those stories and full of very interesting characters, even though, you know, most of the time you don't like them. I guess uh, what I'm suggesting is not at all uh, that it would be an unlikely book for you because I expect you to be only interested in one thing, but more to do with the fact that it feels like there are many yous. Uh, You know, there's the heroic channel swimming David Williams and there's the best-selling children's author David Williams and there's the Britain's Got Talent uh, David Williams and then there's the genius comedy writer that really pushed the boundaries of you know of 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 what you know might be perceived acceptable in terms of comedy and and come up on the wrong side of it a couple of times more recently but you know and 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 all of those people to inhabit one person is 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 quite must be quite challenging <laughs> exhausting well, I'm not doing all the things at one time so it's kind of okay um I just feel you know like uh, I feel like when I became well known with Little Britain, I, I felt like, you know, you, you've been given it. We mentioned golden tickets. You've been given a golden ticket in a way. And, you know, there's lots of things you can now do with your life because there's this tension on you. So if you choose to do something like Swim the Channel, people are going to be interested and you can raise lots of money for comic relief. You know, and I, I know there's a lot of debate about well-known people writing books. And I know it, it's not um, popular. Uh, with you know many people out there, but obviously you are given opportunities that you didn't have before, and so I've always felt that it's the right thing to do to sort of run with those opportunities and try things, and and you know, and I, and I'm also interested when there is a chance of failure. I feel like that is when, you know, when you're out of your comfort zone, whether it's swimming the channel, whether it's writing a book, something you've not done before, whether it's doing a to play with Michael Gamble or something. When you're out of your comfort zone, you're, you're being challenged, aren't you? If you just do the same thing over and over again for the rest of your life, I don't know, you, you're sort of stagnating, aren't you? So I've always tried to sort of move on to new things. And even in my children's books, I, you know, I, I try and make sure I'm always challenging myself in terms of what the setting is for the new book. You know, I'm, I'm very, I've written a lot of books now and I feel like, you know, very concerned about repeating myself. So I go, okay, this one's set in Victorian London. You know, the a new book I'm writing is, is set in America in the 1960s, which I've never done before. You know, I've set other books and all in a country house in the 1930s or something. Just anything that gives me a challenge, which makes it difficult for me, is then exciting. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk about The Unconsoled, which is the next of your choices by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which I have to tell you, I started reading. Obviously, I couldn't read all of it in time to uh, before doing this interview with you. But I found it so funny. And, and, and in terms of kind of inhabiting many lives and trying to <laughs> try, trying to follow a narrative when you don't even know what the hell you're doing or who you are uh, or why you're somewhere, uh, this definitely lives up to all of those questions, doesn't it? But but the thing, when you describe it first and then I'll tell you what made me laugh because I was laughing so much in, in, in the first couple of chapters. Well, Kazu Ishiguru... He wrote Remains of the Day, and that was, you know, an absolute sensation as a book. And then a few years later, it became an Oscar-winning movie, which is equally fantastic. And so six years after Remains of the Day was published, he came out with The Unconsoled, which is a lot longer book. It's basically a dream narrative about a concert pianist trying to get to his concert. And it takes place over a couple of days in a European city, and it all the time things are sort of put in his path, which makes it impossible for him to get to this concert. It's pretty surreal. You know, as I say, it's a dream narrative. There is lots of humour in it. At the time, people were a bit disappointed by it, I think, after because it remains the day, I think, had just been such a sensation and people were a bit disappointed. But I think now it is rightly seen as, as, a, as an absolute masterpiece. I got to meet Kazu Shiguru and I was like so starstruck and I was quoting bits of his book to him and I think he was quite taken aback that I was such a fan. But we've sort of stayed in touch a bit and now he always sends me a signed first edition of his new book, which I always treasure. I don't do the same to him because I've got no, I'm sure he's got no intention of ever sitting down and reading Gangster Granny. But um, I am I am his biggest fan and I think this book, it, when I read it, I was so enthralled by it that I instantly read it again, which I think has ever happened with a book before. But I think a big part of it is about um, Ryder, who's the concert pianist. He's trying to make his parents proud by doing this concert. That's a big theme of the book. And I think, you know, anybody who's trying to achieve anything in life, it's often about trying to please your parents and that part of it really, really resonated with me. I mean, if anything good happens in my life, the first person I call is my mum, because I want, you know, I want her reaction to it, you know, more than anybody. So that's kind of all that matters is her approval. And sometimes when she's a little bit, you know, just preoccupied or feels a tiny bit disinterested, I'm actually quite wounded. You know, I'm like, oh, I thought you'd be interested. You know, I've sent you my new book, mum. Have you read it? No, I've been, I've been busy. I haven't had a chance to read it. Anyway, so... So that part of it really resonates with me. I think the dream thing makes it, to me, really enthralling. Dreams kind of pick up pace, don't they, it seems. You know, by the time you wake up, the sort of images and thoughts are absolutely flashing through your mind, and this book is like that. And I think it's probably unfilmable, which is why, unlike some of his other books, it hasn't been filmed. But I think it is one of his absolute best. And I love his prose. There's something so sort of delicate about his prose, and he often expresses some very complex thoughts and emotions in quite simple ways. He doesn't show off how intelligent he is, even though he is obviously incredibly intelligent. But he, he, you can just it just seeps out of every sentence because every sentence is perfectly constructed. So, you know, for me, he is my favourite author. I think certainly my favourite living author. I thought it was also, it could be a sort of dissertation on fame, at least as much of it as I read, because the sort of obsequiousness with which everyone in this hotel greets him and, and they're constantly apologising and saying, but of course you'll be tired, but, but of course you'll need to lie down, but of course you'll need to come here, to the point where then the manager sort of finally calls him, who's been busy in some meeting and calls him, and, and he sort of goes, look, I'm just having a nap now and I'll be down in a bit. And the manager goes, well, I'll be right here and and he he suddenly realizes that he means he will stand right there waiting for him and it's a sort of passive aggressive thing that i think is reflected you know sometimes people sort of come up to you when when you're well known and they go you won't remember me 
and you think, oh, that's a bit antagonistic. You know, maybe I won't. But, you know, could we start this on a different, you know, level in a way? And um, I thought there was that to it as well. Did you feel that at all? Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't well known when I read it because I read it soon after it came out in, in the 90s. Um, but I think it probably reflected, I'm just guessing, but I think it probably reflected what happened to him, but to, to Kazuo Shiguru, um, after all the, you know, noise about Remains of the Day, because he had, the, 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 you know, obviously the, the, the book and the movie and it was kind of, you know, for a time it was one of the most famous novels in the world. So I guess he was now subjected to all this scrutiny, interests, obsequiousness, all the kind of things that can happen when someone becomes well-known. And he was reflecting that. And also, I think, I often liken fame to um, you're in a car, um, it's travelling downhill fast, the brakes have been cut, but you've still got your hands on the steering wheel. So you're sort of just <laughs> trying to navigate the whole thing, but it's kind of out of your control and it's kind of terrifying. And you know, at any moment you could crash, but you're just about managing to dodge the cars and the pedestrians and everything like that. And so it has a, a sense of that about it. I mean, should more I talk about it, the more I'd like to to read it again. But, but I love the humour in it, which is not something you necessarily expect from Kazushiguru, there is humour in his books, but you know he's not he's not a he's not exactly a humorist, you know. Well, he's not PG Woodhouse, you know, in, in in that kind of way. But it's a great book, and I loved how unexpected it was after Remains of the Day. I bet it's publishers after Remains of the Day go, oh, can you write another one like that? Um, and he just completely went the other way. And also, it's really long as well, which I know is kind of off-putting to a lot of people. It's next go, oh, this is too long. Before I move on to your next title, I just wondered about the parental approval thing, because you're absolutely right. We all, you know, seek it in one way or another. I mean, millions of books written about it. But why do you think it matters so much to you? Well, uh, I don't know exactly, other than I suppose... It's just always been part of my life. I've always always wanted to make my parents proud and I've always sought their approval. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, my dad's not with us anymore. He died about 15 years ago now. But, um, but you know, he got to see some of the success I had and, and I was really pleased at that because I spent, I spent a long time, you know, 10 years of you know, doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and playing gigs at the, you know, the Battersea Arts Centre and all that sort of thing. And late at night doing comedy shows with Matt Lucas, not attended by many people. And so, you know, you're sort of trying to say, look, it was all worth it, you know what I mean? Because now, look, we've had some success. I suppose that's part of it. And I suppose my parents were kind of concerned about me wanting to become an actor, wanting to become a comedian, because they didn't know anybody who did any of those things and they didn't understand how you would be successful or how you'd sustain a career or a life or anything. And so I suppose just, you know, showing them that it was sort of all worth it is is sort of important to me. Does the fame matter to them, though? I doubt it. No, but it's... It, it, but it still... It gave them both and my mum now it does give them a sort of lease of life because obviously we get to go to some interesting places and meet interesting people because uh, because people know who I am you know so it could be you know I mean I took, got to take my mum to Buckingham Palace after I swam the channel and got invited to a reception to meet the Queen so she's met the Queen a couple of times you know and that it's kind of it's a pretty amazing thing in anybody's life and and so you know, she does enjoy, and that's not, she's not obsessed by it. She's not, you know, she doesn't live for it. But it's certainly an interesting part of life that she gets to, you know, meet people that she really admires. And, and you know, we, we used to go out for dinner a lot with Barbara Windsor. <laughs> we both absolutely adored, you know, and things like that. And, you know, could see my mum just look really, really happy, hoping that at any point um, somebody she knows might, might come into the restaurant and see her. I mean, and we got recently, like, my, we had dinner with Michael Caine. This is kind of mind-blowing, you know, because it's somebody, especially someone that you really admired growing up, you know, the fact that you can meet these people and they know who you are and you can have a good time with them. It's, it's just extraordinary. 
can we uh, talk a little bit about The Naked Civil Servant by Quinton Chris? Because, of course, there's going to be hordes of people out there going, I knew it. I said he was gay. It's clearly he's gay. That's why he likes that book. You don't have to be gay. It's a it, what I love is it's a memoir of someone who wasn't well known in any way. And he's telling the story of what it is to have been a flamboyantly effeminate homosexual man. I think he was born around sort of 1900s or something. He was conscripted to fight in World War One, And he made no secret of his sexuality. He dressed in a way that um, often provoked violent responses in homophobic people who were out to get him. Uh, he never compromised in any way. And, and he was a real eccentric, you know, he said, you know, he like never dusted his apartment. He said, well, after about four or five years, it doesn't get any worse. <laughs> so he was he was an amazing character. I, mean, I came to him first through watching the adaptation of The Naked Civil Servant starring John Hurt, which is a brilliant, one of the best bits of television ever, uh, adaptation of this book. The book is a bit bleaker and darker. I mean, the film has a fair bit of humour in it, but I just loved going on this real alternative journey of life that Quentin Crisp went on. I just loved how brave he was. I mean, that's the thing I took from him most of all. I have a picture of him on my wall because I like to remember, you know, when people often think about, you know, trailblazers. Well, he he was one. I mean, to live your life like that in a time when homosexuality was illegal and you used to get beaten up for it and all kinds of things like that, is extraordinary. And he kept his humour throughout. And he'd just come up with all these amazing, a bit like Oscar Wilde with these amazing kind of epithets, you know. He said... Uh, when I was a child, other children wanted to be a fireman or a nurse or a policeman. I just wanted to be an invalid. But he just had a way of looking at the world. Timothy Spool worked with him and he said that one day they, they were sat by the seaside. I don't know exactly what they were doing. And, and, and Quinta Chris said, Oh, look at the sea, slapping against the land all day. What does it want? (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. So he had an absolute, because I think he was, you know, an outsider, because at the time it was very difficult to to live your life how he wanted to live his life. He just had this kind of amazing way of looking at the world. And this book is the greatest expression of it. And if you've never read the book or seen the TV adaptation, you have missed out because it is, both are absolutely brilliant. And it's an interesting reminder of, you know, he's a relatively recent figure and, you know, the homophobia he faced throughout his life is, you know, it's important to remember that journey. Maybe I'm bigging this up too much, but I feel that you're also quite pioneering in that way because, you know, you've chosen, uh, it's a very nice segue for me, obviously, but you've chosen Orlando by Virginia Woolf. But I think that as a as a person who talks openly about having kind of feminine, fascination with, with things feminine and having a very feminine side and people thinking you're gay and you don't get insulted by that, you're kind of perfectly happy to address it and, 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 and all of those things. I just wondered whether you ever look at yourself as being a pioneering character and, and where, the, the because it takes quite a lot of chutzpah. You know, you might undermine it, but actually it's quite a lot because you are dealing with people's judgment and they might be thinking fabulous, but there's always the chance that you're going to get the next one coming along and go, oh, you look at you, you idiot, you know. Yeah, I remember that. I remember being out um, in a dress um, I think it might have been in Edinburgh actually, and and I was wearing a dress as my girlfriend, and she's like, we like dressing up and going out. And someone went, "Why? What are you wearing a dress for?" And I went, "Because I've got some imagination." <laughs> <laughs> it sort of changed me a bit because obviously I'm well known now, so I'm a bit less. I suppose I liked drawing attention to myself quite a lot, or sort of feeling like I was a bit of a sort of edgy character, you know. Whereas when you become well-known, you're, you're quite grateful necessarily not to attract lots of attention because you, you, you get a little too much anyway. But certainly Quentin Crisp has been an absolute hero of mine. And, and, and talking about Orlando, which is really he is in the film of Orlando, the book I've chosen by Virginia Woolf. I mean, just 
it's a cliche thing of being ahead of its time, but someone who changes gender during, you know, the story and then lives forever. I mean, it's a, the book is a kind of satire on what kind of the literary world, really. It's just such a magical idea. And Virginia Woolf was one of those writers you read and you sort of want to, you think of yourself as a writer, but you think, actually, I, I sort of need to give up because this, because <laughs> I'm never going to write anything 0.001% as good as this. I mean, this is a classic for a reason. I just think it's, it's a very interesting book to reach for in this period of time as well because this issue has become one of the sort of big issues of the day, isn't it? And there was Virginia Woolf in the 1920s already imagining what it would be like to change, you know, during your life. Do you ever wonder about that? I know that's a very blunt and clumsy uh, question, but 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 I do think it's intriguing as well, because especially now that that it's become the least controversial thing that anyone can possibly do. And you have very openly kind of embraced that the fact that 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 there is a sort of feminine side of you that isn't necessarily, you know, the honed machismo of the uh, dilettante, uh, you know, serial data that you've also been presented as. Um, well, it's, you know, it's something that I do think about in terms of, you know, like dressing up and the fun of that. And every, every, every time I get to, you know, play a female role, I, I really enjoy that. And I do often think, you know, say to friends and stuff, oh, can we go, can we go to this, can we go to this drag bar or something like that? It could be fun. Yeah. So I don't feel constrained by, you know, not doing that. I don't, I don't think about having a, uh, actual sex change but I definitely think it's fun to explore your feminine side and it's something I've always been at home with and I like the, the, the way the world is changing that it's becoming a lot easier for people to live their lives how they want to live. Have you always been at home with it because you've also talked about a sort of sense of of self-loathing that 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 you can't eradicate and that that manifests itself if you don't keep yourself busy all the time out doing th- you know you do not like to be left alone with your own company do you think that that's something that you've become perhaps more reconciled to and where did what, what did the self-loathing come from and and does it still inhabit you i think i've always loved the world of imagination so i've for me it's always been an escape so I love writing books because I love being alone with my thoughts and creating, you know, a world in my head that hadn't previously existed. You know, being able to be playful as an actor and as a writer are things that have really kind of helped me and probably why I'm drawn to those things and probably why most creative people do something external. Let's talk about your fifth surprising choice, because every one of them has been, well, perhaps not the twits, but all the others have been uh, wonderful uh, and rich surprises. Um, Philip Larkin's The Wits and Weddings. I would never have had you down to pick The Wits and Weddings. One of my favourite poems, the the actual one called The Wits and Weddings, but actually my husband said very disparagingly to me the other day that that was a sign that I was a Philistine and actually here is the best poem uh, in the book. But what is it about this particular collection and Larkin? Well, I love I love Larkin, so I like all his poetry collections. I think this one stands out because the Wits and Weddings is so beautiful. You know, it's probably my favourite poem of his, but it has some other beautiful poems in the collection. I'm thinking of First Sight, which is a wonderful thing about lambs born in snow that they can never imagine how beautiful the world is when the snow melts, which is fantastic. There's also a wonderful poem about the jazz musician Sidney Bechet. It's called For Sidney Bechet. And it says, on me your voice falls, as they say, love should, like an enormous yes. I mean, it's, it's really beautiful because you think of Philip Larkin as being quite a depressive figure. But actually, he always saw the beauty in the mundane and the ordinary. And, and for me, reading poetry at bedtime is a wonderful thing. I love looking at the shape of the words on the page. I love the language. I love the fact that the meaning is not often completely obvious. There might be a, might be slightly opaque. And for me, it sort of, it paints pictures and makes me dream. And so I'm never without a poetry book by my bedside. And this, for me, 
is probably my favourite. But it's, it's hard to choose with Lark. I mean, there's, there's actually only, what, four or five volumes of poetry, aren't there, um, that he created in his lifetime. I really like the idea of a writer who only brings out something when they've got something to say. And that's what he did. You know, years would go by between books of poetry and the rest of the time he was working as a librarian at Hull University. And it's, it's extraordinary. You just think, oh, well, he'd just be churning it out, wouldn't he? You know, like David Williams does with his children's books. But he doesn't. He, <laughs> he waits, he waits. But I kind of think that's extraordinary to live your life like that, where, you know, all that matters is the work and the quality of the work. And if you've never dipped into Philip Larkin, I think it's a great way to start, and especially with the poem The Wits and Weddings itself. Would that be your aspiration to get to a point where you're so comfortable with yourself and and life and, you know, all of those things that all that matters is the work and the quality of the work? That's not to say that the quality of the work is bad, but it feels like you try and do a lot. Could you ever imagine kind of zooming in more? I think if I, you know, if I was a great artist, yes, but I don't see myself like that. I just see myself quite rightly I don't see myself like that I just see myself as an entertainer so I'm not as you know if I was had Philip Larkin's talent I think I would like him spend it very wisely I like entertaining people and you know hopefully making people laugh so it's a different place I'm coming from but I like the myth of that the myth of the great artist who you know only speaks when they have something to say if only that applied to me. <laughs> no, no. If that applied to you, then this would not have been as much fun as it has been. David Williams, thank you very much for sharing your books to live by. I've really loved talking books with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. Come back every week. My guests over the next couple of months will include Juliet Stevenson, Joe Brand, George the Poet, Frank Cottrell-Boyce, and many more. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Times Radio app. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.